0: right okay uh philippians tonight our bible survey uh philippians right okay let's uh get a little bit of the background here uh paul's writing to our believers in uh, philippi which um was at the extreme northern corner of greece Um, or as it was known back then Macedonia Um, and it was near the border with what would be modern-day Bulgaria Um, and it's inland just near the um, Aegean Sea. Uh, It was named after King Philip II of Macedon whose uh, main claim to fame is that he was the father of Alexander the Great Uh, so very very Greek. However at the time of Paul it was predominantly a Roman colony and although Greek it was much more Roman than Greek you know so I mean the Roman Empire really had kind of taken it over as it were Um, very very few Jews there there was no synagogue in Philippi and whereas you know the Jews you know kind of got all over the then known world there, there, there were hardly any in that particular region And that explains something which is unusual for Paul's letters, and it's that this letter does not quote from the Old Testament at all, uh, because it would have been irrelevant for him to do so. Um, Now, Paul had uh, been there on his second and third missionary journeys. We saw them, didn't we, when we did the Acts of the Apostles. The first time was in Acts chapter 16 and the second time was in Acts chapter 20 and it was his first visit there where you had the incident, remember he was um, thrown in jail with Silas and there was the earthquake and they could have got away but they didn't and the Philippian jailer who was going to kill himself uh, realised that they hadn't escaped because if you escaped Uh, Roman law would have put the jailer to death you see so he just thought he'd do it himself but when he realized that uh, they were still there and hadn't used the opportunity to be free uh, he became a believer so that was the beginning of uh, you know evangelistic uh, results um, in Philippi and then Paul went back there during his third missionary journey as well now when when we we saw last time when we did Ephesians um, that Philippians is one of the four letters that Paul wrote whilst he was under house arrest in Rome. And you can read about his house arrest in Rome in Acts 28. And so the four letters that he wrote whilst under house arrest in Rome was Ephesians, as we saw last time, Philippians, here that we're doing tonight, Colossians, which will be next time, and Philemon, they're the four letters. So, Paul, what we're reading tonight Paul wrote whilst he was um, under house arrest in Rome in Acts 28. And that puts the date there for around AD 61 somewhere around there. Now the predominant reason for Paul writing to them, and this partially explains it's a very different letter from most of the other stuff that Paul wrote, and uh, his reason for writing was predominantly to Thank them for a financial gift that they had sent him. Paul was what you would call bivocational. Uh, He was a single man. Uh, He was well able at some times to finance himself, and he financed his team as well. At other times, when there was no need, when provision came through, he would just give himself full time to ministry. And he's actually writing to thank them for a financial gift that they had had sent to him. And they'd actually sent it uh, via uh, a guy called... um, Epaphroditus and subsequently that makes this a very personal letter most of the other letters that Paul wrote had various other reasons I mean the Roman epistle is different from the others because there he was writing to a church he'd never been to and he was writing more or less to introduce both himself and the gospel that he preached and that's why Philippians is the great exp- expository epistle, if you like, but most of the others were written to churches that Paul had planted and was involved with and normally they were written in order to sort out various problems and false teachings that were arising. So this letter is very different because it's basically a thank you letter for a gift. Uh, you know he touches on one or two things in the church as we'll see later on but it's a very personal letter and uh, it's kind of Paul just writes about the things that are most on, on his heart at the time. Now ov- obviously in the, this expository series, sorry in this uh, bible survey we're doing one talk more or less on each book of the bible so we're up in the helicopter or looking down you know on the landscape from a great height to get the whole picture in one talk but i take you back uh to when we did the expository uh, series or, or one of the things we did in the expository series and this is well back when dinosaurs ruled the earth is that we actually did 11 talks on this letter so that was more down going up each road and seeing where it went as it were so that was very detailed but obviously tonight just uh, very much uh, a a sort of overview but uh, if you want to look at it in more detail so those 11 talks are in the expository series okay right um in chapter one let's just read the the first two verses he says Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus so it's from Paul and he addresses it uh, from Timothy as well now this is unusual he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi together with the overseers and deacons now as you well know overseer or bishop depending on what translation you use is a synonymous term along with elder or pastor shepherd again depending what translation you use and so here is one of paul's very very few references to leadership in the churches uh, you know, I mean, sort of nowadays with our obsession in leadership and stuff like that. If you wrote to a church, you'd write to the pastor of the church. I mean, there's no, no such thing as the pastor of a church in scripture anyway. we I very obsessed with leadership. Paul hardly ever mentions elders. He just, you know, kind of like he, if he was writing to a church. Obviously, if that church has el- had elders, they were included in. But but this obsession with leadership and titles and, and, and all this sort of stuff that you get in Christianity traditionally couldn't be more different than you find in Scripture. This is one of the very, very, very few occasions uh, that Paul refers to elders virtually in any way at all. But nevertheless, he does greet them and also with them um, the deacons. But predominantly, it is to the saints, and as, as is his habit, he, he wishes them grace and peace, and that he tends to, in Paul's letters, he'll tend to start the letters with grace and peace and he'll tend to end them with grace and peace as well, because that's really what following the Lord is is all about. And then in verses 3 to 6, he thanks them for their partnership with him. Um, obviously they were a great help to him when he was present with them, but the fact that they've given to him financially, they've entered into partnership with what they are enabling, what Paul is doing, if you like, they're investing in what God has called Paul to do and therefore Paul, you know, says, hey, you know, you're kind of partners with me and, and he thanks them uh, for that uh, partnership and then uh, you get this, you know, it's one of my, my favourite verses and then he says to them, he says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, so that's a kind of um, good, good verse to, um, to know there. And uh, in verses 7 to 11, he tells them that he longs to be with them, which is understandable because he then goes on to say that he was in jail, which which he was. He was he was in, 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 in chains. And, and he was in chains. I mean, although it was house arrest, he was still chained to a soldier. And, uh, you know, I mean, sort of when you get Paul's, you know, when he talks about the armor of God and uses that picture, he's kind of sitting there. We saw this in Ephesians last time, didn't we? I mean, you know, he's take, you know, he's sitting there looking at this this big burly Roman soldier he's chained to. And that that that's where he's Oh yeah, oh the armour of God, that's a good idea. And so, you know, so he's writing this chain to a big burly Roman soldier. And so he says, I, I I long to be with you, because I mean, you know, you're not going to enjoy being under Roman house arrest. And uh, so he tells them that, you know, that he longs for them and that he's in chains because um he's defending the gospel. And uh, he prays that they're love and their understanding may grow and uh, that they might be filled with the fruits of righteousness through Jesus to the glory of God that's his prayer for them and uh, again whenever the Bible talks about fruit you'll always find that fruit is talking about righteousness it's talking about character we tend to think in terms of fruit being results you know people talk about you know fruitful evangelism or fruitful this that and the other whenever scripture talks about fruit, it's always talking about personal holiness growing in the very character of Jesus himself and that's his prayer for them that they would be growing in the Lord and growing in righteousness and in verses 12 to 18 he he encourages them which kind of seems a bit odd because if you're under house arrest you kind of want the encouragement yourself but Paul tended to always be encouraging others rather than thinking of himself And, and he reassures them that because of the imprisonment that he's going to, that this has furthered the gospel. So to that extent, Paul was actually happy and content uh, to be under house arrest because the mere fact that he was meant that people were hearing the gospel who wouldn't have heard it otherwise. And he refers to the palace guard, you know, sort of so he's he really had got influence high up in in Rome. And, uh, you know, sort of people really close to the emperor were hearing the gospel as a result of Paul. And he says that everyone knew that he was imprisoned because he was a Christian. And he said that also as a result of that, not only are people hearing the gospel who wouldn't have done otherwise, but he says believers round and about are being emboldened in their preaching. You know, because... You know, I guess it's the idea they were seeing Paul imprisoned and he seems to be doing all right. So maybe that took a little bit of any fear away that they had about, oh, goodness, if we preach the gospel too loudly, we might be imprisoned as well. So what Paul, his situation, was actually encouraging people. Now, he then goes on to say something that's pretty astounding, all right, but it's good to understand it and to be aware that he he did say it. And he says that, that him being in prison was emboldening people to preach the gospel. And he says, most of them are doing it from right motives. So he says, the fact that I'm in jail is causing people to preach the gospel. And he says, most of them are doing it from right motives and out of love. But he said, but there are some, there are some who are taking opportunity to preach the gospel out of selfish ambition to get at Paul, to make life even harder for him in his imprisonment. And uh, he says in verse 17, the former preached Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. So Paul experienced what it was to actually have other believers around In various church situations, who not only didn't like him, but would actively do what they could to make things not very pleasant for him. Paul Paul doesn't say they're not believers. Of course they're believers, they're preaching the gospel. But isn't it amazing to see that, you know, that, that here you've got Paul referring to Christians who were preaching the gospel from the predominant motive of selfish ambition to get at him. You see, there were people around who reckoned themselves to be someone special. Paul didn't reckon himself to be someone special. God rather did, but Paul didn't reckon himself to be special. And there were people, they they were kind of in competition with him, do you know what I mean? They, they took Paul personally, and they were all the time wanting to get rid of him, almost as if they stood, Paul stood in the way of what they were trying to do and they were only thinking of themselves wanting to further their ministry or their profile or their influence and of course the thing that bugged them so much was that paul had so much influence he had more influence than they did and uh you know they didn't like that so anything they could to get at paul to tear him down to try and rock people's faith in him as it were and their trust in him they they would do and and paul says yeah this is just selfish ambition and kind of um, envy and rivalry. That's what he says, envy and rivalry. I mean, amazing. And uh, But nevertheless, he goes on to say, he says, well, with these people, he says, okay, their motives are wrong, and it's making life hard for me. They're actually trying to do harm to me. But he says, but insofar as Christ is preached, I rejoice. So that's amazing. People preaching the gospel from the motive of trying to get at Paul make life hard for him. But Paul's response to that is, well, they're preaching the gospel. At least people are hearing the gospel. They're wrong, doing it for all the wrong reasons, but at least people are hearing the gospel. And of course, that tells us something else. Because Paul wouldn't merely be rejoicing in the preaching of the gospel if that meant that it's guaranteed that no one got converted. He's rejoicing because he's aware that that people are being converted through their ministry the same as people converted through his ministry. If it had been the case that because they were out of order God didn't bless their evangelism, why would Paul rejoice in it? Because no one would be getting saved. But Paul's acknowledging that God used these men and blessed their ministry insofar as they were evangelists. And of course, this further helps us to see And understand how wrong it is. It's back to what I said earlier about fruit. When we want to test things purely by results, you know, we want to say, "Oh well, look, you know, God is blessing that; it must be right." Well, could it possibly be right to preach the gospel from selfish ambition? The answer is no, of course not. But Paul rejoices because God is using it, and people are getting saved. So the point is, we need to understand that the test is never, does this work? The test is never, does God bless this? You can't establish whether something is right or wrong through God blessing it or not. God is a God of grace, he'll bless anything he gets his hands on. The only way to test whether something is actually right or wrong is whether or not it is scriptural, in line with what the Bible teaches, and also whether or not those involved in it are bearing the fruit of Christian righteousness, as opposed to things like selfish ambition and envy and rivalry, and the things that he's just mentioned. And of course, today, you know, Christians are very much obsessed with this pragmatic outlook, wanting things to work, or, you know, there's a million things out there that go completely against what the Bible teaches. But the Lord, in his grace and mercy, uses and blesses them. And that's wonderful. And we can rejoice that the Lord does. But the fact that he's blessing something never means of itself, necessarily, that it's right. The only test for that. And of course, what people tend to do is they say, Oh, okay, it goes against the Bible, but, well, God's blessing it, it must be alright, mustn't it? And of course, that is completely false logic. Paul said, I rejoice that these guys are preaching the gospel, because at least the gospel is being preached. But does that mean that Paul is saying, hey, isn't it just so wonderful that they're doing it out of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition? Of course not. That's despicable. But then, isn't our testimony individually, each one of us, that God uses us whether we're right or wrong anyway? I mean, if God waited for us to be right before He used us, would anyone in this room, me included, ever be used for anything? The answer is absolutely not. God uses us on the basis of grace, whether we're right or wrong, or he doesn't use us at all and so that's kind of important to you know to understand that you know that sort of paul could rejoice in god using people even though what they were doing was for all the wrong reasons in, in fact it was what they were doing was more motivated by sin than it was by the glory of God and the leading and the moving of the Spirit. But given that God used it anyway, then Paul could rejoice. I've often said uh, in the Old Testament, God spoke to Balaam through an ass. Now that's great. Isn't that wonderful? God spoke to Balaam through an ass. We can say praise the Lord to that. But it doesn't mean you're going to start bringing donkeys along on a Sunday to see if we get more prophecy. You see, (coughs) God will use whatever he's got to hand But the question of whether or not something ought to be the way it is is whether or not, one, it conforms to Scripture, and two, whether or not those so involved are substantially, substantially, as it were, looking for the glory of God and not merely the promotion of of self. So when we look at all the horrible, rotten stuff on the Christian scene today, even when we sadly look on and see, uh, you know, Christians. <laughs> gotta say, particularly often in leadership, busily sticking knives into other people in leadership because they see them as some kind of threat. And all this ladder climbing that goes on, like business executives. Well, Paul experienced it. But the point was, I mean, you know, where these guys were going so wrong? They were trying to climb, get Paul off the ladder, so they could climb up it. The problem is, Paul wasn't on that ladder. I mean, they were barking totally up the wrong tree anyway. But in their perception, they saw Paul as a threat. (coughs) And so, therefore, they tried to do him down in order so that they could promote themselves. So it was all happening back then. And sadly, it happens today. But celibate, celibate, and everything, God can work together for good. Okay, right, now in verses uh, 19 to 26, he moves on and he tells them that he expects to be released eventually and, and is prying um, to that uh, end and indeed historically he was um, although the Acts of the Apostles ends in chapter 28 with Paul still under this rest, rest in actual fact he was released and went on further missionary journeys, we saw that when we did the chronology of, of Acts but he's, he's expecting, at this point, to be released, and he was actually right. Um, and he just says that he hopes that whatever the outcome, that he'll exalt Jesus, that he'll bring glory to the Lord, even if it's through martyrdom. And, of course, remember, Paul eventually was martyred, not on this occasion, but he was ready for it, although it didn't actually happen to him on this occasion. <coughs> and he says that either way, Alive or dead, he's with the Lord. And that 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 is what mattered to him. But at least if he was alive, i.e. with the Lord down here, rather than with the Lord in glory, then at least he could carry on his service to those around him. And he goes on to say something that, well... I don't think I've ever been able to say. Uh, I certainly couldn't say it now, but I'd have found it hard to uh, say it even a few years ago. But he says that he would rather be with the Lord in heaven because that's better. Now, one of the reasons that I can't say that is, unlike Paul, I'm a married man. I mean, I'm not sure it's unspiritual I can't say. it. Paul was a single man, and uh, I've, you know, I've, 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 I've heard, I've heard from those here in singleness even from those who are now married but were once single. Such things as roll on the rapture, you see. And, and of course, things things can be very different when you're single. And Paul was single. And, and I mean, that's kind of, you know, important to realise. So he would have rather been with the Lord in heaven. That was his preference. But then if you look at the life Paul led, it's understandable from another point of view. Paul spent an awful lot of his time not just getting stitched up by other believers but getting beaten up by unbelievers he spent a lot of time in jail went through quite a few shipwrecks was regularly beaten within an inch of his life well when you've got a bit of that under your belt i can understand you'd rather feed with the lord especially if you haven't got wife and family that you're going home to at night so they can dress your wounds or whatever and so What's that? He doesn't say that anymore, does he? <laughs> <coughs> well, he's married now. Of course he wouldn't say it anymore, that. No. That's right. So, so <coughs> what Paul is saying, from his point of view, he would rather be with the Lord in heaven, and, and that's pretty understandable. But, he says, him staying alive is better for them. And Paul was not thinking about himself. Paul was more concerned thinking about what he could be doing in serving the Lord and what he could be doing for those around him and uh you know so that's 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 the measure of, of Paul you know a, amazing selflessness and he, he he says here that he knows he's going to remain alive I mean he kind of knew that although martyrdom was going to come it was quite a way off from from, from this point and uh, and he said that you know he'll he'll be staying around in order to help them progress in Their faith, and you know, and he he, he hopes that the fact that he is going to be around a bit longer will increase their joy in the Lord. And then in verses 27 to 30, he urges them to conduct themselves in a worthy manner and in complete unity. He says, verse 27 Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. So he says, look, conduct yourselves in a worthy manner. And he says, be in complete unity. And he goes on to say, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And what he's saying is that because they can be so one together, that corporate strength will help them overcome the potential fear that obviously in these days they were living often facing physical persecution. Paul is writing from imprisonment. Uh, this is true of various parts of the world today, isn't it? Uh, you know, sort of believers where you are, I mean, we, we don't, at the moment, require physical courage to follow Jesus. We require moral courage and emotional courage, mental courage, even we don't require physical courage because we are not in physical danger for following the Lord. They were, and that brings a kind of a, 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 a whole different way of being frightened and he says, well look let let your solidarity let your oneness together uh, that that will help to stop you being being frightened by those who oppose you and those who are trying to um." persecute you and he says in verse 29 for it has been granted to you on behalf of christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw i had and now hear that i still have and he reminds them that suffering in whatever shape or form is part of the package um and paul says look i'm going through it so, if you going through it, this is where we're all in the same boat, and, and, you know, in that respect. It shouldn't come as a great surprise. But, of course, the fact that Paul is doing so well is obviously an encouragement to, to them as well. Now, when we come into chapter 2, we we hit, I suppose, one of those things that is, you know, those bits of the Bible that is considered to be one of the grand statements of theology uh, which probably doesn't you know describe it very well because I mean I don't think Paul was sitting there thinking in terms of I'm describing theology this is not a lecture at a bible college but nevertheless what Paul comes out with now is is just astoundingly deep in what it actually presents of the truth of of what Jesus does now let's 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 actually just 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 read the first four verses And he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now obviously, he's already told them that there are believers around who are living pu- out of that very motive. He says, I don't want you to be like those believers. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And, of course, the issue there is not whether someone else is objectively better than you or not. The issue there is the humility of our own hearts, which isn't interested in comparing ourselves with other people in order to get a bit of one-upmanship with them. Can you see? That's, that's the point. And he says, each of you should look not only to your own interests. Uh, it's valid to look to your own interests. Uh, but he says, not only to your own interests but also to the interests of others. And this is what we see personified in Paul. Personified in Jesus, of course. (coughs) But Paul was so changed by him that he was very much the same, always so much more concerned with others than himself. And then in verse 5, he goes on to say, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And what he does now is he tells them some things about Jesus that epitomises what it is he's saying to them. He's saying, look, this is what Jesus is like. This is what Jesus has done. Therefore, this is how we should be. Okay. And what he... Well, let's read through it. He says, who being in very nature God, because obviously Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus always was in the Godhead did not consider equality with God something to be grasped so he wasn't saying well I mean I've got ultimate position here in the Godhead I'm not letting this go for anything no that that wasn't the way that Jesus thought because he had something to do and that's something that needed to be done obviously was in order to save us and that something that needed to be done was this but made himself nothing nothing Jesus, of himself, as the second person of the Trinity, was everything, but he made himself nothing. Now, just look at where this making himself nothing began, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. The great humiliation that Jesus went through, the greatest aspect of the humiliation that Jesus went through, the biggest step down that Jesus ever took was becoming a human being in the first place. We cannot imagine the sacrifice involved to lay aside your position within the Godhead ultimate, infinite power and everything, and to lay that all aside leave it behind and become a human being. We can't. That's where the humility of Jesus began. Becoming a human being in in the first place. And he said, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, well, even more, as if he hadn't done so already, but then he went on, (coughs) and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, can you see what's happening in here? Jesus is going down, 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 and down. I mean, becoming a man was down enough, but... Having become a man, he then experiences a disgraceful and shameful death. I mean, down, down, down. And then it says, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So, Remember heaven outside of the universe, got the earth, the surface of the earth, and of course at the center of the earth. Uh, paradise used to be there, isn't anymore, but Hades, the place of the unbelieving dead. And the time will come when every, every knee, every demon, every unbeliever throughout history, the time will come when they have bowed down and confessed that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So can you see what's happening? This is a, a down and an up. Now Joel, Joel, Joel and I had the honour of knowing a guy who, when he was in the Air Force, he was a squadron leader and uh, he, he, he held the dubious honour of um, the record for Jet Ascent. I think he actually held the record or he had done at one point. Now in the RA, I mean there's no official record here because it's not something that officially happens and the reason it doesn't happen is because to go for the jet ascent record, you've got to be a complete and utter nutcase. And the reason that you've got to be a complete and utter nutcase is that in, in, in order to ascend in a jet faster than anyone else, the only way you can do it is to first of all drop out of the sky from an incredible height. Now, as and, and literally just plummet down like a stone, over thousands, thousands of, of, of feet. And then the, the key, all right, the, the technique involved here is the longer you leave it before you, you, you go up again, the faster you'll go. It's like, you know, when you swing a spaceship around the sun, you know, do, do you know what I mean? The faster you're coming down, which means the longer the time you're descending for, which means the closer you are to the earth the nearer you are to ground level when you swoop back up again and then give those jet engines everything that they've got and that determines how fast you're going to ascend, alright? And of course the reason that you've got to be a complete and utter nutcase to do this is because it's a manoeuvre that would never be required in the normal course of flying, even in action. And of course because if you get it wrong you end up in a very, very big hole made by your jet. But can you see the point? The the lower you come down, the higher and the faster you end up going. And can you see that is exactly what Jesus did? Because he went so low, he has now gone back to being so high, which, of course, is what he was in the first place. And... Paul says, and that is Jesus' example to us. He says, that is the attitude that Jesus had that we should have. What's he just said? He said, look, don't, don't do things from selfish ambition, not self, others first. That's his whole point here. Jesus had ultimate position and he totally gave it up in order to help us who deserved absolutely nothing from him. That is the ultimate self-sacrifice. That is the ultimate preferring the needs of other people. Now, Paul says there's every possibility that someone else sitting in a room at any given time is better than you. It's a very, it's a very great possibility, isn't it? That anywhere you are, there might be someone who's a better person than you. I wouldn't argue with that. But who is better than Jesus? No one. There was no one who was remotely better than Jesus, quite the contrary, yet nevertheless he gave it all up and he came down, down, down and down, sacrificing himself, putting the needs of others first. And Paul says that's the key to unity, that's the key to fellowship, that's the key to compassion, that's the key to love, that's the key to fellowship, that's the key to tenderness preferring others above ourselves but of course the great problem is that's the exact opposite to what we are naturally but if Jesus lives in us Paul said your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus how can we have the same attitude of Christ Jesus well because he lives in us in Corinthians Paul says you have the mind of Christ now if Jesus lives in us if we deny self we can experience his righteousness through us so what he's talking about here is actually quite viable paul isn't talking about something completely unattainable in any practical terms he says look this is the key to -to day-to-day fellowship this is what it's all about having the same attitude of jesus what he did when he came down 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 went as low as he could because of that god highly exalted him and he says in the same way you go down 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 putting other people's knees before your own and if you do that, don't worry, The Lord, you won't lose out, the Lord will exalt you. You know, if we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. No question at all. And in verse 12, he then goes on to say, remember, in the light of what we've just read, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. <coughs> so we're back to, well, I mean, how, how can you be like Jesus? Well, Paul says, work out your own salvation. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that this is in our own strength? No, of course not work out what God has worked in. What has God worked in? Jesus. He says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act for his own good purpose. Jesus lives in us. So therefore, if God has worked Jesus in, so to speak, then what Paul is saying here, let him out. Get out of the way. Align yourself with what he wants. And if we do that in obedience to his revealed word, then Jesus can actually live through us in our place, so that our power, our resource, is coming from him rather than from our own sinful natures. That's what Paul says. Work it out. Work out what God has worked in, and this is what you do. You put others before yourself. And then he goes on to say, and this is, this is all, all the same sort of, he says, do everything without complaining or arguing. Now, what's what's complaining? Well, it's not fair, poor old me. You see? Who are we supposed to be thinking about? Poor old other people. If anyone's poor, other people, not not poor old us. And he says, arguing. What's arguing to do with? Now, he's not talking here about proper debate in that sense, proper communication. He's talking about here the sort of the arguing that goes together with complaining. Think of a complaining child, you know, sort of like when it's time for them to do their chores. Oh, no, no, not fair, and arguing, or, you know, a hundred good reasons why they shouldn't do what mum and dad's telling them to do. That's what Paul's talking about here, not reasoned argument between adults trying to establish what the right thing to do is. He's just talking about the pure selfishness, the knee-jerk reaction that just puts self first. And he says, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God. What he's saying is, be what you are be what you are the children of God let's let's be what we're supposed to be and then he goes on to say that we can shine like stars in the universe And the point about stars is that they're, they're, they're throwing light out into the surrounding darkness that is what Paul is saying uh, we should be doing as well the world is dark sin rebellion demonic power everywhere well, if we live righteous lives, then we can shine out that light. Now what what is the light? Jesus, the light of the world. It's Jesus shining out through us. And so that's 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 what he says to them to do. And then in verse seventeen he says, Look, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Now, what Paul's talking about here, he's saying, look, even if I am about to be martyred, he's saying, nevertheless, it's worth it. And he talks about, like, the drink offering. There, there, there were times when you take maybe precious drink, I mean, it might be water in the desert, you'd pour it out to the Lord, see. And what Paul's talking about is, well, maybe I'm going to be poured out. Wasted. I mean, you know, sort of like, it's, I mean, wasted is actually a synonym for being killed, isn't it? You know, if against the wastes you, he kills you, you see. So Paul's saying, maybe I'm about to be poured out like a sacrifice. But then, let's go back to what we saw. Now, when Jesus came from heaven, as it were, down to earth, think in terms of his Father pouring him out. See? That's the picture Paul's got. Jesus was poured out onto the earth like a drink offering. And Paul says, and if if now I've got to give up my life, well, he says, well, okay, so be it. Right. And, uh, and, you know, and he says, he says, rejoice with me. And um, right. Okay. Now then in verse 19 to 30, he uh, tells them that he uh, wants to send Timothy to them soon. Timothy was probably the closest co-worker that Paul had. And Paul literally considered him as his son. I mean, he wasn't literally his son, but it, it's quite clear from what you read. And, uh, you know, especially uh, will eventually come on to the two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy. And you see this real kind of father-son type thing. And he says that, you know, he wanted to send Timothy to them before too long so that he could get a first-hand report back from Timothy how they were all doing. And, uh, you know, and he, he tells them that, you know, that sort of like Timothy, he considers him to be his own son. and um, And he says... In verse 20, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests. And there Paul says, Timothy really stands out, because as a believer, he looks to the interests of others before the interests of himself. That's why Paul and Timothy were so close. They both shared (coughs) that characteristic of Jesus um, so, so closely. But Paul says, but in actual fact, what I'm going to have to do is to send Epaphroditus uh, because he's he's longing to get to you. So he wants to get there so much. And Paul says, you know, that, that that's okay. I'm going to send him. And he says that Epaphroditus had actually been very ill and nearly died, but had now recovered and was, uh, you know, sort of keen, keen to get back. Remember, he was the one that they sent the gift uh, to Paul through. Yeah, so, so he says, honour men like because they're ready to die for their service for the Lord. And, of course, um, there's not necessarily a lot of people around like that. Okay, right, now then. In chapter 3, um, he starts to, uh, to wind up, and he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And he says, It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. And Paul Paul, Paul was quite happy to... Go on and on and on about the same things, always back to basics. <coughs> <coughs> not that he only dealt with the basics, but he would always take people back to the basics. And he's saying, Look, I'm gonna remind you again and again and again that you should rejoice in the Lord. And he says it's a safeguard for you. And it is <coughs> because if we excuse me, <coughs> if we don't rejoice in the Lord, and if we're not thankful, well then Satan gets in and that's that's not good for us and it's not good um, for those around us and uh, then he, he goes on to warn them now of the circumcision party remember there probably you know weren't weren't any Jews or not many Jews um, up there in Philippi but remember the circumcision party they were believers from Jerusalem but they were Jews who although they believed in Jesus they were going around teaching that nevertheless you have to come under the law of Moses. So, you know, they were saying that Gentiles would have to be circumcised, would have to become Jews, as it were, and come under the law, which of course was complete nonsense, complete false teaching. And Paul warned people, Jew and Gentile, about them. And he says, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. And of course, Paul's being really ironic here, because dogs, That was the term that self-righteous Jews used of Gentiles. They would refer to them as being dogs. You know, i.e., you know, sort of, well, what a dog is to a human being, spiritually, that's what Jews felt Gentiles were to them. Mere mere dogs. (laughs) And here, Paul calls the circumcision party dogs. You know, I mean, this is this is irony. And um, You know, and he says, you've got to, um, you know, watch out for them. And he says, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, we are the true circumcision. Because, of course, in the Old Testament, circumcision was a picture of something. And elsewhere, Paul talks about that circumcision, which, if you think about it, was the cutting away of the flesh. Paul says that's a picture of the fact that our hearts need to be circumcised, that we need the Holy Spirit to cut away the flesh of our hearts, our hard-heartedness, our sinful nature, you know, to do that surgery so that, you know, like our, our old heart of stone can be removed, as it were, and replaced by a heart of flesh, I. A a picture of the character of Jesus overriding our hard-heartedness and you know and Paul says you know for peace be carrying on going back under the mosaic law and all the rituals and stuff like that that's completely to miss the point that was all the picture of what Jesus has now fulfilled and because Jesus has fulfilled it now all that stuff has just completely gone and uh, you know so he says look you know sort of be warned have nothing to do with what these people because yeah, they were traveling around all the all the churches you know sort of like spreading their poison and spreading their false teaching as people who teach nonsense like to do and so paul warned people against them in no uncertain terms and uh, in verses 7 to 11 um, paul paul goes on to say that look if you want to talk about you know jewishness he says look at my own background he said i mean i was a jews jew I mean, we talk about a gentleman's gentleman, don't we? Paul was a Jews Jew. I mean, Paul was a Pharisee. When it came to spirituality and his spiritual upbringing and everything like that, Paul was up there with the very best that Judaism had to offer. And, uh, you know, he even, as he said, persecuted the church. He says, you can't get more Jewish than that in that sense. I even persecuted the church. So he says, these guys traveling around laying great store on their Jewishness and the fact that they're Pharisees and stuff like that. He says, I was all that and more so. I mean, Paul was trained by Gamaliel. I mean, Paul was, you know, I mean, whatever a Jew was, Paul was up there with the best of them, all right. And he then goes on to say, but all that that once I considered to be my prophet, you know, he said, that's what made me. When I was lost, when I was just in my religious Judaism, I thought all that was what counted with God. All right, and he says now all of that I count it as refuse. Now let me tell you that that's far too polite a translation. Um, I think there are translations that put it dung. All right, and um, you know, and and that's much closer to what Paul is actually saying. What he's saying is. It's worth absolutely nothing. It is, it is total refuse. It's dung. Because he says, what counts, what counts is knowing Jesus and having a righteousness that comes from him. Because remember, the Old Testament, the Jews should have known this. Their Old Testament said that man's righteousness is as filthy rags. Now again, let me tell you that that filthy rags is far too polite a translation of uh, what the prophet actually said. So, so Paul's saying all that is just ugh, it's unclean, you, you don't want to touch it even. Not compared to the excellence of knowing Jesus and having a righteousness <coughs> that comes through faith in him. And then he says, He says, I consider it rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And then in verse 10 he goes on to say, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And that's what Paul wanted. Paul just wanted to be more and more and more like Jesus. Now, he knew... That one day, that means that he was going to be resurrected. He was actually one day going to get a glorified body. That he will be absolutely like Jesus. Because eventually, we're going to be sinless. But he didn't just look to that resurrection. He did look to that. But also, he says, that I may share in his suffering. Becoming like him in his death. But Paul knew that Jesus was only resurrected because he first died. And when it comes to life down here now then life up there resurrection glory but down here there's going to be suffering there's got to be death to self that is the only way we can know what living a holy life is and so paul says that's what i want to know jesus sharing his death not circumcision not all this religious nonsense that avails absolutely nothing he says i want to know jesus better and i want to share In every aspect of his life, including the suffering that he went through. And let's let's define what ultimately was the suffering of Jesus. If we're to share the sufferings of Jesus, what is it going to be? Well, remember Isaiah 53, that great prophecy of the suffering servant that depicted the suffering that Messiah would go through. What was the key to that suffering? He was despised and rejected by men ultimately the suffering of jesus was that he was rejected john's gospel says that he came to his own people but his own people received him not that was the suffering of jesus to be rejected by those he came to save now for him that rejection led to physical death and there are believers whom that happens to as well but when paul says look i want to share in the sufferings of jesus he knew full well that his life down here was going to be ultimately rejection by other people because he was following jesus and then in verse 12 he goes on to say that but but i haven't attained this yet he says not that i've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect but i press on to take hold of that for which christ jesus took hold of me brothers i do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press onwards to the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. And what Paul says, haven't arrived? I mean, you know, we don't arrive until we get to glory. That's when we arrive. You know, any idea that God's work in us gets to the point where, right, okay, now we're holy. Um, you know, now our, our, our sin problem is now over is, is complete nonsense. Even Paul yet had growing to do, yet had maturing in the Lord to do. So how much more the rest of us? All right. But Paul says, but I press on. Okay, I mean, I leave what's behind, all my mistakes, all my sins, I repent of that, and I press on, and I move on into the future. And he says, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And that is Christian maturity, the pressing on. Not tied up in constant bemoaning of the past, Neither tied up in a constant beaten by problems in the present. Christian maturity is that pressing on towards the goal. Kind of doing the growing. One day we're going to be just like Jesus. Well, okay, then that process is happening now. That's what occupies uh, mature believers. And, um, and he then he says, only let us live up to what we have already attained. Let us live up to what we've already attained. So Paul was the first to acknowledge every believer is at different places, you know, at a different place with the Lord. And you mustn't impose where you are necessarily onto other people. But the key is this: whatever you've attained by way of knowledge and growth in the Lord, we must be faithful to that. And one thing I do know: if we're not faithful. To the light we've already got, we will not grow, we will not move on to further light. And one of the reasons that there are believers who are stunted in their growth is because the Lord has done things or approached things in their lives that they haven't said yes to. They've they've stopped the Lord. You know, can you see, they've said no to something or they, they haven't gone along with the Lord. There's an area of their life they're hanging on to and won't let go. Well, okay, if that's the case, if we haven't been faithful to what we've already attained, there won't be any growing. But wherever we are with the Lord, we must be faithful to the light that we already have. And then in verse 17, he goes on to say, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern that we gave you. Now, Paul says, with myself and the other apostles and other mature men in the Lord who you know and you trust, He says, there's a pattern to our lives. There's a way of doing things. Now then, that pattern relates to many, many things. It relates to work life, it relates to family life, it relates to church life, it relates to church practice. Paul gave churches patterns. This is the way we do things. He actually called them traditions, repeated practice. And Paul says, look, you know, whatever these patterns you're seeing in me and in other people, he says... Follow our example. Basically, he says, do what we are doing. Okay. So there is a design and there is an order to the Christian life. And the more mature a believer is, the more of that order and pattern you'll see in their lives. The more areas of their lives will be ordered according to that pattern. And what Paul is saying is, you can see that pattern and order in the lives of mature believers. And Paul was one such believer. So he says, then follow us. You know, don't just do what we say, do what we're doing. You can actually see us living this out, and that's what you've got to do. And he then goes on, he says, For I have often told you before, and now say again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And when he talks about their God is their stomach, what he's meaning there, that's a picture in the Jewish mind of appetites and passions in general. Now then, not saying that there is anything wrong with appetites and passions. God has created us with appetites and passions. There's nothing wrong in that. What Paul is saying, these people, what the immediate needs of their body is all they live for. It's all they're interested in satisfying whatever appetite, craving, or passion they've got next. And that is their life. (coughs) Their God, rather than being Jesus, their God is actually their own belly. It's actually their own body. They live purely to satisfy their own wants and desires. Okay, And uh, if, if Paul is earlier in condemning the circumcision party, if there he's dealt with believers who introduce legalism, Now, legalism is when you you require of people more than Scripture does. That's legalism, all right? Here, Paul makes it very, very clear, but that doesn't mean that we're free to be in what you might call libertarianism. Neither is it. Anything goes. And here, he's having a go at anyone who might say, well, no, but you basically just do what you like. The Circumcision Party required far too much of believers. Libertarians don't require half enough of themselves and other Christians. You see what I mean? Just want to do whatever they want to do. Well, Paul says, absolutely no way. And then he goes on and he says, look, we eagerly await a saviour from there. He said, our citizenship is in heaven. And he says, we eagerly await a a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That's the resurrection that Paul referred to earlier that he's looking forward to. And of course, what he's saying here, he says, look, my salvation is not over yet. When we did the salvation series, we saw that salvation is past, present, and future. We saw there was justification, and that's to be set free from the penalty of sin. Well, that's over, that's done, that's in the past. You know, justified, never sinned. And that was through Jesus' death. And we saw that present salvation is what's going on in the present tense, day by day, moment by moment. And that's what the Bible calls sanctification. Now that isn't being delivered from the penalty of sin. That's already done. We are delivered from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is being delivered from the power of sin. And that is not by Jesus' death, but by his resurrection. Because he lives in us. Because he rose again from the dead, he lives. He lives in us. That's where we have the power to overcome sin, from the life of Jesus within us. And then there is future salvation. Now Paul was talking about present salvation when he was previously going on about sharing you know, the sufferings of Jesus and becoming like him in his death. But now he's talking about future salvation, or what the Bible calls glorification. And that is to be saved, not from the penalty of sin, not from the power of sin. But future salvation is that one day we're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin. We're going to be sinless. We're going to be sinless like Jesus. But more than that, we're actually going to have glorified bodies just like him. I.e., we will become human beings in the same way that Jesus is a human being a glorified human being the gospel is there's a glorified man in heaven we're all gonna be just like him just like Jesus and this glorification this deliverance from the presence of sin is by Jesus's return because although when you die you'll go to be with the Lord in heaven you'll be sinless but you won't have a body it's when Jesus comes back it's when he returns that we'll all get our glorified bodies. And so there, Paul is looking forward to the fact that his future salvation will one day be on him. And his lowly body will one day be transformed to be like Jesus' glorious body. And that's why it's glorification. So that's, that's what Paul is um, looking forward to. Then in chapter 4, he says, Therefore, my brothers... Does anyone want to do the therefore thing? Whenever you get a therefore, don't forget to find out what it's there for. Alright, okay. He says, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. How should they stand firm in the Lord? By taking on board and believing and living by everything Paul has just told them. He says, Because all this is true, Therefore, stand firm in the Lord. Because the Lord has done all this. Therefore, we can stand firm in it. Now, in verse 2, he just deals with a little problem that was in the church. This letter was not written to address problems in the church. It's just a personal thank you letter. And it's why Paul is being so personal in it all. But one little problem he addresses. He says, (coughs) I plead with you, Odia." and Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now then, there's a bit of a personality clash going on in the church. There's a couple of ladies who don't get on, who always manage to disagree. Now, in another situation, it'd be two blokes. This just happens to be two ladies. But, you know, but Paul, he knows these people. He says, "Now, oh, I know that there's, you know, there's a problem here with these two. You know, help them. Help them out on this. They need help. Notice, he doesn't say, bring them to repentance. Do Matthew 18 on them. Do church discipline on them. He says, help them out. Obviously, they're not, you know, this isn't some World War Three between to people resenting and hating each other, it is a personality clash, people who can't get on. Paul says, look, help them to get on with each other. And he says, look, they have contended at my side in the cause of the Gospel. You know, he, he says, they are my fellow workers. You know, I mean, certainly, we, we're, we're clear from Scripture that leadership functioning is for men leadership functioning is only one aspect of functioning and any idea that women folk are there to make the coffee prepare the love feast that's not what Paul thought I mean Paul Paul mentions in his letters women in terms of they contended with him side by side they were his partners in the gospel that's not just thinking that they were there to make the tea you know Paul Paul was so aware of the ministry of women a far cry from this women should just you know as i say be making the tea that's that's not what scripture teaches in any way at all doesn't mean that women need to be elders or bible teachers anything like that no the bible doesn't permit that but outside of that it doesn't mean either that women have nothing to do in the cause of the gospel that's ridiculous paul depended on some of these women so he says look please clement you know, please help them to get on with each other. Okay. And uh, and then he says, let's read this. He says, look, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. He's already said that earlier. He's back to it. Rejoice. He says, let your gentleness be evidence of all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. <coughs> but in everything... By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. As I like to say, why pray when you can worry? I mean, there's a choice here. You do one or the other. You're anxious or you pray. Can you see Paul setting up a... You know, you've got... there's, There's only two ways you can go here. Worry or prayer. Okay? So he says, don't be anxious about anything now then if we're not to be anxious about anything what does that leave that it's okay to be anxious about nothing <laughs> right okay so he says but in everything by prayer and petition prayer with thanksgiving present your request to God so then in everything be praying so what isn't included in that Nothing, you see? So we got nothings and we've got everythings, all right? The problem is that, that that we don't do the everythings and we spend too much time on the nothings. You see, we get it wrong, we worry instead of pray. We're anxious instead of, you know. In prayer, we're handing things over to the Lord. In prayer, we're saying, I don't know what to do, Lord. This looks real difficult to me, but Lord, I'm trusting you. Show me what to do. That's That's what keeps us away from anxiety. And then he says, "And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, reminds me of um, a Christian who went into a fish shop and asked for a piece of cod, which transcends all understanding." He says, "The peace of God fell on deaf ears, didn't it? Oh, too subtle, you know. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus." Now, this word "guards" here—remember, Paul is chained to a Roman guard. The picture here is of a prison guard or someone on sentry duty. So what you've got here, when you've got a soldier on guard or a soldier on sentry duty you have power taking care of things. Right? Now what Paul is saying look, if you don't worry and if you pray about everything and trust the Lord, then You will find that the peace of God can be in your hearts in such a way that it will guard your hearts and your minds from further worry and anxiety. See, it's a vicious circle, we know this. If you start worrying and don't repent of it, it spirals down, doesn't it? But then if you catch yourself and repent of it and start trusting the Lord, the more you trust the Lord, the more worry becomes an irrelevance. Can you see? Because the more you trust the Lord, the more it guards you against the temptation that Satan's trying to give you all the time to worry and be anxious. So the peace of God can guard us and protect us from worry and anxiety, but assuming we're aligning ourselves in our wills with what God says about anxiety and about prayer. Praying about things, looking to the Lord rather than worrying. And think about it, what is worry? Worry is saying, Lord, you are not able, Lord, you are not willing you know i mean uh, a married i mean if 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 a woman's married to a tow rag she might be anxious about what he's up to when she can't see what he's doing now that's why we only discover how deep our faith is when we don't know what the lord's up to you see what i mean but if we're worried then can you see there's this thing about you know the lord might be a tow rag the lord might be up to no good behind our backs and we're worrying Or the Lord isn't able to sort things out. Or the Lord doesn't want to sort things out in the way that's very best for us. It's all casting aspersions on the goodness and the mercy of the Lord. And so Paul says, you know, hey, no, in nothing be anxious. But in everything be praying, be looking to the Lord. And then he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right... Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That's everything Paul's been writing to them. You know, I mean, he said, look, keep your mind on the stuff I'm writing to you. You know, don't keep your mind on all the negative and all the rubbish and all the what ifs and what if this happens and what if that happens. He says, Look, you know, rubbish in, rubbish out. Keep your mind on what you know to be true, what you believe, what you know to be right and and, and, and know to be um lovely and excellent. And then he says, Look <coughs> whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Now, that's incredible. Paul saying, Look, you know, whatever I've written to you in a letter, do it. Whatever you've heard me say, do it. Whatever you've seen me do, do it. And you'll be alright. Wow, that's maturity, isn't it? I mean, that, that that's a challenge, isn't it? You know, I mean, Paul wasn't, after, you know, you know, wasn't having to say, look, do as I say, not as I do. He said, look, you know, you see it in me. You can see it in me. Just do what I'm doing. And elsewhere, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Ooh. <laughs> you know, but... Paul knew he hadn't arrived, he had further to go, way ahead of us. But the point is, this is what we must be pushing into more and more. You know, so it gets to the point where, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of people don't just have to, you know, sort of like, you know, hear what we're going to say. They just need to look at what we're doing. And that will answer their questions, you see. Um, so that's that's that, that's a real challenge. And then he says, and the God of peace will be with you. And uh, he, he goes on to... Thank them again for, for their gift. And uh, he reminds them that when it comes to finances, he knew how to be abased and he knew how to abound. Paul experienced at times having nothing, being in jail, uh, being beaten up, you know. At other times, he experienced what you might call a prosperity at the time. And, and Paul, Paul put no store on either one or the other. He says, Whatever the Lord hands out to me, well, he says, that's, that's fine. He says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, people love to hook verses in the Bible out of context. We're going to see another one that they do it with in a minute. But um, you get this, the faith teachers, the charismatics love this. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And it's always applied to working miracles and to healing and to great visions and stuff like that. What does it refer to? It refers to being content in whatever situation you're in. Ironically, my experience of people who are what you would term charismatics, true blue charismatics, is precisely they're never content about anything, because they're always straining after that next miracle or that next this that or the other, not for them being content. Well ironically this verse, if you want a challenge, let that challenge be wake up in the morning And go to bed tomorrow night, having been content the whole day. Now that should keep you going for a while. That will require the very resurrection power of Jesus. Because our sinful hearts are so discontent. Because we always want more. We always want more than what we've got. The grass is always greener on the other side. But then, as we discover, sometimes the Lord puts us on the other side, and then says, "Right, mow it." (laughs) And you realise that the grass might be greener on the other side, but it still needs mowing. And there are problems over there as well. So the point is that here, this verse, "I can do everything through Him who gives me strength," is talking about the grace of being content in whatever situation we are in. And uh, he he says, "It was good of you to share in my troubles." Uh, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Now, that should tell you something. The Philippians were the only church that regularly supported Paul. See? I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? So you can, you can understand why Paul, this letter, is Paul pouring his heart out. I mean, he's so close. These people mean so much to him. I mean, you know, unlike other church, I mean, you know, there was a sense which with other churches... Still lovely people, they love Paul and Paul love them. But there was a sense which he planted churches and then, it's you know, sort of like in relation to those churches, it was merely sorting out their problems the Philippians gave back to him. And that was very special to Paul. And of course, that's, that's what a church ought to be like. Not merely needing help all the time, but a church that's giving help, you know. And, and, and the Philippians really were a great help to Paul. And Paul said, not that I'm looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. Because he said, the Lord will bless you so much for this. You know, give and it shall be given. And uh, he says, I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now here's the other verse that Charismatics love to take out of context. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus now normally whenever you get that verse brought up it's usually some people have some great vision which needs millions of pounds to come in and they're praying and fasting their heads off or rather fasting their love handles down all right <laughs> to get this money because and my god will supply all your see oh uh, What's the context of this verse? Paul's saying, because you have given so sacrificially, be assured God will supply all your needs. This is not a promise to make you richer. This is a promise that when you've given more than you had, the Lord will still make it up to you. That's what this is. This isn't some promise of prosperity. And, you know, if you get enough faith, then you'll get, you know, sort of like, you know, that new Mercedes or something. That's not what this is. This is when you've given so that you've compromised yourself. Don't worry, the Lord will provide. That's that's what... Because of sacrificial giving, the Lord will repay you. And that's uh, ver- so easy to take verses out of context. <coughs> and, uh, you know, when there's absolutely nothing, nothing whatsoever to do... With um what you know, the actual context, what what the writer was meaning. Okay, and then just the last couple of verses, he says, Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus, the brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Now then, there was a link between the fact that Paul was imprisoned and that the Emperor his staff were getting converted now that's that's getting a bit of influence isn't it and isn't it funny again i have to to keep going what is it Got, got to keep going back to the charismatic movement tonight in a charismatic movement what you do is you get a vision to preach the gospel to kings and princes and and you get these audiences with presidents of African countries and 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 through your ministry they become believers and then suddenly you're you're tremendously important in a whole country. Now, how did God do it? He got Paul in prison and got to Caesar like that. It's all so different in the Bible, isn't it? From the, the, the nonsense that, that you get taught out there today. So so different. Anyway, and then he began with grace and he ends with grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Okay, we'll finish there, and uh, next time will be Colossians.